Throughout the country, the various water authorities have been reviewing the situation, and they'll be discussing with representatives of industry, management and unions, and the fire brigade and the health authorities, what to do next if there is no rain. In 1976, Britain faced the greatest water shortage of the 20th century. Public standpipes were erected on street corners, with people lining up for tightly rationed water. Industry and domestic users have been told to reduce their water supplies by 50%, and where some industries may have to close down altogether. Four rivers in Sheffield went completely dry. Plentiful beech trees sensitive to the drought died off in UK forests. The drought bill will thus give local authorities the power for enforcing restrictions. But the logic of restricted hours, water tankers in the streets... The 1976 drought occurred well before climate change was a buzz term Tomorrow. regularly yesterday. tossed around yesterday. by neck-vein-popping pundits on national television. But in September 1976, Britain lucked out, receiving the heaviest rainfall since World War II. What's your reaction now you've been turned back on again? Well, I think it's absolutely marvellous. I mean, we've all been rather upset. Much of this sounds ominously familiar. Especially since last year... The last couple of winters have been exceptionally dry. The UK Environmental Agency warned that the country faced its most severe water shortage since 1976. So how can fiction make sense of all this? Well, Maggie O'Farrell, winner of the Costa Award in 2010, has written a novel called Instructions for a Heat Wave, which takes place during the 1976 drought. What's striking about this novel is how the language of 37 years ago almost mimics the vernacular of today. But O'Farrell's novel subtly fuses personal responsibility with political awareness by focusing very tightly on a family forced to stick it out together. Strange weather brings out strange behavior, writes O'Farrell at one point, and boy, does it ever. O'Farrell has somehow reframed the domestic novel into something that reveals far more than we anticipated about the way that we live now, and that may very well offer some preparation for the global warming to come. Now, those of you who listened to the Mark Sloka show we aired last week know that I've been especially fascinated with novels depicting recent history, but that end up hitting the points in time that aren't necessarily the obvious touchstones. So, of course, I had to talk with Maggie. Now, if you're just joining us, welcome! My name is Edward Champion, and this is The Bat Segundo Show. You can find more than 500 full-length conversations in our archive at batsegundo.com. B-A-T-S-E-G-U-N-D-O. And if you enjoy this program, please let other people know about it. Rate us on iTunes. Spread the word through social media. Let other people know about us. Hell, you can even write our name on some sort of naughty love letter. Whatever you need to do. All of this helps to keep the program going. And now... Here's our conversation with Maggie O'Farrell. Okay, so I am here with Maggie O'Farrell, who is most recently the author of Instructions for a Heat Wave. Maggie, how are you doing? I am fine now. I'm here, yeah. Yeah, you're here. <laughs> I, you, you what, 15 blocks to, to, to come here? I had, is... I had brushed with a, yeah, the rather uh, amateur taxi driver, so I walked oh. 15 blocks. But, you know, it was fine. I, I, saw, you... I saw some of the city. A gypsy, complain. a gypsy cab driver or, or a bona fide yellow <laughs> cab driver? I'm not sure. Driver? He huh. seemed to be bona fide, but he he doesn't seem to know the city very well. I, oh, think okay. I probably could have driven myself quicker. He didn't know the basic major blocks, the numerical <laughs> blocks. That's pretty, pretty it seems uh, so, inefficient. Yeah. Well, okay. So um, my understanding is that this book was inspired when you saw people go a little cuckoo, roughly around the nigh-unpronounceable Icelandic volcano. And <laughs> I'm wondering how you 
got from Ayafiyayokalo, <laughs> I think that's what it is, uh, to 1976, just to start off here. Well, I had planned to write a completely different novel. It was yeah. going to be historic and sweeping and intercontinental. And I'd started doing uh, a lot of research for that. And I'd even put a little bit of pen to paper. But then it was funny. It was a bit like radio interference. I started getting these snatches of conversation and images, which were a family arguing in a kitchen. It was very, very hot in this kitchen, very, very humid and very close. And it was it was annoying because I actually wanted to concentrate on my other book. But these family kind of wouldn't, they wouldn't shut up. They you wouldn't know, shut they up. They were families, families having an argument. don't shut up, yeah. Exactly, no, <laughs> I find that too. Um, and then what happened was that this is a tipping point was geothermal, as you say, the unpronounceable volcano in Iceland um, erupted and the whole of northern Europe just came to a standstill. It was extraordinary. Yeah. You know, there were no flights leaving, nothing arriving. It was just lockdown. You heard the story of John Cleese? Yes. Yeah, that, that was crazy. That's one that's, of my that's, that's, yeah. that's like that's like he did. He absolutely had to go home. Only so him though. Only yeah. he would do that. Which is <laughs> insane. Yeah. So people, you know, normally, I mean, I was living in London at the time, and my normally pretty sane neighbours were just, you know, ranting in the streets about flights they'd missed or holidays cancelled, visitors who never arrived. And, you know, people were bulk buying bread and milk. It was this kind of really weird sort of panic set into the whole of Europe, really. You know, and as you say, something people... To create, something to replace the Cold War scare, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And people, you know, they were like, you know, people were commandeering taxis to drive yeah. them from Paris to Madrid. And, you know, it was really crazy town, crazy town behaviour. And it was just... I became, I became slightly obsessed by it. I watched all the news reports and every time I heard someone talking about it, I would listen in. And I kept thinking, God, this reminds me of something and I couldn't think what it was. I couldn't place it. And then one day it kind of came to me. It was the heat wave of 1976 and I don't know if this was a big deal in the States but it was certainly a huge deal in Britain and Ireland you know it was the one of the big defining features of the decade really um I mean I was four at the time um and it's made a huge impression on me it kind of forms the basis of some of my earliest memories yeah yeah and uh you know I think it was one of those it's one of those situations where you know the whole country kind of pulled together we were all in the middle of this huge drown this huge heat wave and you know that that kind of unified spirit hadn't really been called for since the Blitz. I think you know yeah. everybody sort of got stuck in, and we all you know we had standpipes in the street. There was nothing coming out of the taps. Um, you know we weren't allowed any bars, no hose pipes, nothing, and everybody had to fill up their own quota every day from the tap in the street. Yeah. Um, and it's odd, you know, people who've lived through it never forget it, and they will talk about it, you know, um, endlessly. Which for a novelist is a gift, uh-huh. you know, because you just I had to sidle up to people and say, what do you remember about the 1976 heatwave and out the stuff would come and it was always amazingly personal that was the other really interesting thing people would talk about getting divorced or having babies or you know what happened to them or that was the kind of games they played as a child and it was an amazing kind of for a novelist anyway, it was an amazing key to unlock all these incredible stories how so, did you start talking to people about what they experienced in 1976 did you just ask around start from friends yeah, use the internet what, you really what didn't no it wasn't it was the internet was there wasn't a huge amount on the internet actually interesting there were a couple of photographs and yeah. a couple of people talking about it and a few sort of um, newspaper articles about the time. This is one of those particular moments that people hadn't actually chronicled online, but if you actually went to the right places, you can get them to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things where I just say to people, oh, I'm thinking of writing something about the 76 heat wave. And total strangers would start to tell me incredibly personal stuff. One woman I'd never met before to start telling me about how she started having an affair with her next door neighbour. <laughs> Wow. You know, which is, you know, gold dust, of course, you know, because people... T- it's a, it was an amazing sort of, I don't know what you call it, catalyst to people telling you stuff. Do you find that people tell you 
very personal things because you're a novelist. I've uh, talked with novelist journalists before, mm. and the minute they hang up their journalist hat, once things actually get going on the novelist <laughs> front, suddenly it's like, well, uh, I'm a novelist. Oh, I can't possibly use the material in any way. <laughs> I think people are probably a bit wary, rightly so, actually, because you know novelists are ruthless creatures. We will yeah. do, we will use anything. They'll you take tell us anything, yeah. we'll just we'll just nick it. You know, you have to realize that. So um, I, I know you ransacked me right before you sat down. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. It's all written down in a notebook. Um, no, I think people are people are quite wary. I mean, you know, as I say, rightly so. But certainly, this for some reason, you know, I'm not quite sure why this heat wave of, in Britain just well, t- people will suddenly, you know, spill their guts out to you. Well, there were a number of things that cropped up in relation to the heat wave. Number one, mm. just how parallel it is to climate change right now. But yeah. simultaneously, this also leads me to wonder, and maybe we can talk about this, fiction may actually be the best medium to discuss, well, how are humans going to change their behavior as we have more floods and hurricanes and rising ocean levels. I mean, maybe the novel is the way to start uh, preparing ourselves for the insanity of the human race. What are your thoughts on this? Well, possibly. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I don't see anyone really preparing themselves at all in any way. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're horribly unprepared and we're just taking an ostrich approach to the whole issue. But I think that was one of the strange things about researching the novel, you know, that all this anxiety about the drought and the lack of rainfall and the dry reservoirs was in a time before, you know, nobody had heard the expression to climate change. No one had even, I don't think anyone had heard of the ozone layer, you know, it just wasn't discussed. It yeah. wasn't an issue. And, you know, and I, all I could think was well, when I was researching it and looking through, I found the government policy that they rushed through Parliament in 1976. And, you know, the government's fear and panic is absolutely prevalent in that document. It's amazing. It's sort of, you can feel it from the very pages. You know, they were really worried. They were worried about civil disobedience and yeah. riots over water. And they had all these sort of contingency plans in place, you know, and conscribing help from the army in case there were, you know, civil unrest. So you could tell they were really anxious. But... You know, the big question in my head, of course, the whole time was thinking, well, what would what would it be like now if this happened? Because people would be terrified yeah. if that happened. Yeah. Well, we experienced, like, you know, we've had a number of hurricanes here and so sure, forth. So absolutely. we've seen a little bit of that. But, I mean, but it is interesting that here you are looking at utter turmoil as represented in what people are telling you in terms of their own personal stories mm. and as reflected in the news articles you looked at and the government documents that you consulted. Yet... This is ultimately about uh, domestic conflict, and, I, and I'm wondering if um, if keeping some of the uh, extra turmoil uh, to the distance was more of a concern for you in, in concentrating on these lives. I mean, you know, was it just literally just the Kickstarter to getting these characters to really sort of um, open up their feelings, or, or what? Well, I was quite interested in something that would bring together a family that was largely estranged, you know, grown-up siblings, who two of whom haven't spoken to each other for three years, and putting them all, squeezing them all really back into the house, the small house in which they grew up, and back into the the roles they don't fit anymore, the kind of, the sort of family, um, the family sort of sequence that doesn't fit anymore. I was interested in the idea of what would bring people back, you know, why would they have to come back? And especially to, just to ratchet up the tension to use this heat wave, you know, because it really is a kind of melting pot. They all squashed in together. Yeah, it's like yeah. a crucible, you know, and they can't leave the house because their dad disappears. In well, the first pages of the novel, the, the father, the patriarch, walks out and he doesn't come back. It's been noted by several authors and several philosophers that when you get a bunch of family members under one house, they're going to probably be on their worst behavior. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I'm wondering if that might have also been one of the appeals. If you, if you cram, I mean, I know you do this sort of continuous 
first draft going and plowing through no plan for all of your novels. And I'm wondering if just crowding people together is going to create uh, natural conflict or, or what? Well, absolutely. I think that's inevitable. I mean, I think any I think families are always going to be irresistible to novelists because, first of all, we all have one, whether we like it or not. You know, we all come from someone. Um, and I think also, you know, they are a kind of, they, as I was saying, it's a kind of melting pot of different types of personality. You know, I'm sure there's a mathematical formula that if there are five people in the family, there are, you know, my math is appalling. Is, is it 25 different relationships? I can't remember. But, you know, yeah. every, you know, Freud said that every sibling has a different parent or a different mother. Um, you know, every, every relationship, the mother has a different relationship with each child. The child has a different relationship with each other. And I think the interesting thing for me anyway about getting older is that you think those relationships are set in stone, but actually they're not. You know, the sort of pressures of adulthood, careers, marriages, children, mortgages, you know, various disappointments exert pressure on you as a person. And those sibling relationships and those that ordering can change and alter. And suddenly the kind of younger sibling may not want to be treated like the baby anymore. You know, she might want to stand up for herself and yeah. say, actually, no, I'm an, I'm an adult now. But I think families are are particularly bad at catching up with the way people change. They expect you to stay the same, but of course you don't. I have a corollary to my other question about the larger conflict of a, of a heat wave uh, in relation to, I believe it's Aoife. Is that, do I have that pretty close? Very good. Well done. Okay, yeah, very few good. people get that right. So Aoife, <laughs> and now anyone who's reading the book who happens to listen to this can now know exactly how to pronounce her name. Um, she's drawn into this artsy New York world of 1976. Mm. Now, typically, when you have a novel dealing with this world, the, the world itself almost becomes this separate character. Uh, most recently, we had a very uh, notable novel here, Rachel Kushner's The Flamethrowers, in which critics here have been fighting on both sides of the coast. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> it's kind of gotten away from the novel. But the point is, is that there is this kind of political character or this sociological character that comes with the territory in writing about this period. So much happened. But what is fascinating about Aoife is that we really get to know her day-to-day -day dealings when she is working for Evelyn, when she is running errands, she's trying to deal with dyslexia, and she's trying to basically feel this broken landscape. So you're focusing here on the nuts and bolts of, of the characters, obviously, but mm. I'm wondering, you know, were you ever resisting the impulse to really have a kind of wave of time and place of New York subsume Aoife and the other characters who are she's dealing with here in New York at any point during the writing? Or were you, were you pretty much, no, this is nuts and bolts, this is characters, this is no nonsense, that's what's important, and that's, uh, you know, why should this be defined exclusively by time and place? Well, I think as a novelist you have to make a decision about what's going to lead the novel and what's going to, what your novel is about, you know. I didn't want to write a State of the Nation book. I didn't want to write a book about so much about the politics really of the 1970s either in London or in New York which yeah. are the two um, locations of the book and certainly they come into it of course inevitably you know yeah. if you're writing about a city particularly about weather or about you know because in both you know the I think the 70s was a decade in both Britain and New York that was a very difficult decade for a lot of people you know, there was a lot of social problems economic problems um, a lot of political instability certainly in the UK and I think, you, you know, you had to make a decision. And I wanted this novel to be um, a very, very small focus. I wanted it to be, it was almost, I was kind of almost challenging myself to, um, I think with every book, you've got to set yourself a new challenge. And the book I wrote previously was very, very wide ranging. It covered kind of 50 years in time. It went all over the world. 
And I, I wanted a kind of, you know, a contrast to that. I wanted something on a very, very tight lens, very, very tight focus, and almost almost like the classical, classical unities, almost in one place, almost over 24 hours. I mean, it's not it's actually over four days, but um, I just set myself that challenge. I wanted to be a very, very tight lens on something. So I, it, was, it was tricky, actually, because, you know, I think, you know, a huge amount of what you write turns out to be scaffolding and you've got to take it down. So I did write an awful lot about New York in the 70s, and I did write a huge amount about... Uh, you know, Britain in the 1970s, particularly because, of course, the family is Irish, yeah. Irish immigrants, and there was a huge amount of um, problems for Irish people in Britain in the 1970s, a lot of prejudice and, you know, the whole political um, um, situation between Britain and Ireland was very, very tense in those days. But, you know, as I wrote draft after draft, that all that stuff had to be pared away. But the thing is, it's kind of there. It's sort of supporting my knowledge as I was writing, as I was creating this fictional world, but it doesn't really make it into the book. You have to decide. You, you can't put everything in. Yeah. Did you ever adopt any sort of, uh, I, I guess, maternal, despic kinds of uh, duties while writing this? Did you bake bread a lot or anything like that? <laughs> oh, I break, I break soda bread a lot. Oh, okay. You know, yeah, right. I do that a lot. But, and certainly my maternal duties are quite, you know, I've got three young kids. So, yeah, uh, of course. So, yeah, that's all That's all, That's all. all in the back. Well, not really the background. That's really the foreground. The writing is the background. But, yeah, I find, you know, my domestic life is an alternative to my writing. The two uh-huh. the two kind of run along parallel to each other. I'll get, I'll get back to that in a little minute. But I, uh, I wanted to actually talk about how fiction that deals with any past period is inevitably going to come up against the social mores, the folkways of the time, and you have written this book in present tense. So we're dealing in some ways with situations like, for example, you have Monica's decision not to have children, considered quite provocative at the time, or you know Claire's efforts to continue her education at home when her husband has stopped with his PhD. These are things that men who were not especially progressive in 1976 would frown down upon. And yet, mm. when we look at them from a sort of present-day lens, or a pre- I'm sorry, a present-day lens, but while also using a present tense, mm. um, I'm not sure if we entirely feel the shock of, uh, of these particular moments. I mean, we, we obviously, at least I was, kind of upset that characters would be thwarted because they wanted to do things and, and and but at the same time i'm wondering if setting something in the present tense allows us allows total removal from our our later future i.e present uh, <laughs> viewpoint of this particular mm. time i'm wondering about the decisions of this is, is there any real way that that any novelist can get away with that comparing a time period in the past to today or or, or what well i think again it's one of those artistic decisions you make i it's a kind of historical fiction that I really admire is one that's addressed with an incredibly light touch. I, um, a really amazing example of that would be Patrick DeWitt's The Sisters Brothers. I think that's an absolutely fantastic, you know, incredibly novel way to approach the idea of a historical novel. It's so light. You almost, it's almost as if you can't notice that he's writing historically, which I think, for me anyway, that's, that's incredibly skilled I really admire that I what the kind of historical novel I hate is the one where it says you know she picked up the telephone which was made of bakelite which was a very early form of plastic you know you can see the sort of that becomes an essay almost yeah it's so it's just piled on and on and, on, and the, you know the novelist can't resist in piling on all the stuff they know and it really really gets my go I hate it because you know instantly you're pulled out of the story instantly you're not yeah. in the moment and I also find really odious the kind of people who overload it with detail you know they 
you know, with, when I was writing about the 70s, you know, obviously I, this is 70s, a decade I remember just, but um, I didn't want to mention space hoppers all the time. I didn't want to mention that, you know, Donna Summer was playing on the radio. It's, that to me is too much. It's yeah. too cheap. You know, you can't. Well, there's also the risk of it becoming kitsch. Exactly, yeah. kitsch, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's lazy as well because you're thinking this is a kind of cultural shortcut. Somebody can picture it straight away. It's, it's a lazy form of writing. You know, you've got to try harder than that. And I didn't want to write about, I didn't want to write a kind of rose-tinted looking back on the 70s either from the present day with the kind of knowledge that we have now. I wanted to be in the moment. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be, it's not, you know, I didn't want it to be overloaded with period detail. So here's the question for you. I mean, if you are cementing any narrative with a sense of place, you have to have some details that spell mm. it out. You have to have a little bit. So, you know, how do you find the balance between, you know, not doing the whole bean bags or whatnot <laughs> or, you know, mutton chops? Flares, how, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Chopper bags. How do, how do you how do you go ahead and, and allow the reader to believe in the time without overloading the detail? I mean, do you collect a lot of descriptive bric-a-brac and you were mentioning this earlier that you wrote some of New York for example with all these descriptions I mean what do you do to just really get it at that level that you're happy with that is also good for the reader's ability to believe I think I think it's a very tricky course you have to tack very very carefully um, between too much detail and enough detail and not too many cultural shortcuts I think you know you don't want to mention that Someone walked up a flight of stairs and, oh, they were wearing a cheesecloth blouse, by the way, with some flares. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's lazy. So you have to, yeah, and you end up cutting a lot, I think. Any sentence that feels awkward has to go. Any detail, anything that feels, you know, a bit lazy really has to go straight away. So it's tricky, I think. And I, I, I don't know if I pulled it off. I hope so. But, yeah. yeah. So when you were writing these first drafts, I, I'm really curious about this because you don't have a plan. You have, of course, in this case, a historical setting that you need to have relatively clean. Obviously, you're not going to do that entirely on the first draft. But I am curious how many times when you're revising, you have to re-path the course of a character. I mean, how many possible infinite decisions are, are there in that particular process? Or is it pretty laid out on that first draft that you, you, it's just really a matter of, of getting rid of the clutter? You're, you're actually pretty decisive on that intuitive level from the first draft. I'm curious. Um, I don't know. The first draft I always think of as kind of raw material. It's the hardest bit to write. You know, I think the white page is the thing that can give you the most vertigo. That's the thing that gives you, you know, gives me the mo- the heebie-jeebies, you could say, or the collie wobbles. Yes. <laughs> um, but once you've got your first draft, I kind of look at it as raw material. You know, it's like a sculptor with some clay. That's when the kind of that's when interesting work begins. You know, you've got this sort of unwieldy, slightly messy, whatever it is, hundred thousand words, and now you've got to really hew something out of it. Um, and so a lot of it goes, and a lot of it gets chucked, and a lot of it gets reinvented. And other things are brought out. You know, I didn't. The character of Aoife, um, she, of course, has what we now recognise as dyslexia. But, of course, in London in the 50s, when she was growing up, nobody had heard of it. No one knew what it was. People just thought she was thick or obtuse or obstinate. You know, she cannot learn to read. And she conceals it from everybody. She doesn't let on to anybody that she cannot read. She's functionally illiterate. Um, and it's amazing. I, While I was researching the book, I talked to a lot of people who actually have pulled this off. It's an astonishing story. I talked to a woman who, in her 60s, and she, her husband and her kids had no idea she could not read. She had, she used to listen behind the door when her husband read a story to the boys, and she would wow. memorise it word for word. Yeah. And then the next night, she said she was able to do it, and she would pull it off, and they never noticed, which is astonishing. You know, how do you go through life um, 
on that level of pretense. But anyway, she did learn to read eventually, amazingly. So, um, yeah, but that aspect of Aoife with her dyslexia, I that was a very, very small part of the book in the first early couple of drafts. And I was reading through it. And actually, my husband, who's one of my earlier readers, he kind of flicked through it and he kind of put a big circle around it and said this. Now, that's interesting. Ah. <laughs> what about that? Yeah, I, I, and, I, I, so, and so it grew. Oh, yeah. Actually, it would be quite a big part of the book. A number of things to jump off from here, but one obvious question is having literary husband. I know literary couples who really just don't read each other's work because, well, the knives will go out. So how do you avoid homicidal impulses in the household? I'm well, curious. I think, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very normal to us, really. I mean, he, we don't talk about what we're writing at all, or I don't. I keep it completely from him. He has no idea what I'm working on. And because I think your first reading of a novel is such a valuable one, and it has to be as if you've just picked it up in a bookstore. You know, you, you know nothing about it. So I don't tell him at all. Um, the only time he said he was worried when I was writing Esme Lennox, which was about you know a woman incarcerated in an asylum, and he yeah. was alarmed by the subject of some of the books dropping through the door. <laughs> yeah. He think what earth is she up to? Anyway, um, but so no, he does, and he's really harsh, really, really harsh. But that's it's good. That's what you need. You know, I don't need someone who's going to say, yeah, it's great. Don't change a word. Um, it'd be nice if it did, but he never has. Um, well, so in the no, early he's days, very... it must have been pretty brutal. Like you know, guess what? <laughs> You know, you go to your room or sleep on the couch or something like that. Well, not really, because it's actually what you need. And you know, it, you know, sometimes people say things to you, and you know, it's not right. And you're, you know, I mean, obviously, it's your, it's your book in the final analysis. You know, the buck stops with you. But usually, he's right. Annoyingly, um, so it's 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 useful. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't think I'd be able to write a book without him, really. Yeah. Um, going back to how your plots form, I mean, your books often have a number of surprise revelations in them, and I am going to do my best not to give this particular <laughs> book away. But let's just say that uh, certain familial traits, especially in relation to peripatetic relationships, do show up among parents and children as the book carries on, especially mm. near the end. Um, and, and I was curious about this because when you're coming up with these characters and you're starting to play around with them, if, if you're talking about family, well, um, immediately I think a novelist's first impulse would be, well, what are the familial traits that pass down, down the lineage? And so I'm wondering because this book seems to not really uh, play that card until the very end in terms of like, well, we are our parents. Are you consciously resisting to play that very easy card when you're writing your books, I, especially this book in relation to family, that, you know, all right, I want these characters to all stand out. I want them to have very clear traits, but but I'm not going to uh, show that they are their parents till the last possible moment, or I'm not going to... I refuse to play that card. I was really curious. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly, I, mean, I think it would be too easy to say someone's like their parents, because I think, you know, I think we're sort of anagrams of our parents. We're not necessarily... You know, it's everything shaken up. It's yeah. like a kaleidoscope. We are and we aren't. And, you know, there are different experiences we have. And, you know, I think genes, you know, nature and nurture, it's, it's still an interesting debate. And also, you know, I think often you inherit things from, you know, your forebears or your aunts or your uncles or, you know, it's very strange. That's why it's strange looking at old photographs. You can look at them and you can see a great, I see great, great Irish grandparents. And I think, wow, look, she's got hair like her. You know, I mean, we're all, you know, we're all such a mix of different things. I don't think it's it's too simplistic to say she's like her mum or she gets that from her dad. It's a very, I think it's a very narrow way to look at the world and narrow way to look at personalities, certainly. So I suppose I've, maybe that's reflected in the book. You know, the three siblings are all very, very different, but they've had very, very different lives for a reason for that. And I think that can be frustrating about getting 
to be a grown-up and you go back to your family and you can see, you know, you can see things in your parents that are a part of you, but you can also see why you are the way you are, why you perhaps run away, why you want to be different, why you define yourself against them. Or how you consciously resisted falling into the same trap exactly. as your parents. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know, or, you, or didn't. Or didn't, yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, it, it's a kind of interesting dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. Um, your son has dyslexia and, hmm. of course... Ify does as well. Um, there's a common misconception as well that fiction is drawn wholly from life experience. Mm. Um, but in this case, you're drawing in some ways on personal material as well as the research you do into dyslexia. Um, I know that you also had asked your son's permission yes, um, before using this. <laughs> uh, this. This leads me to ask, you know, what's the fine line between trying to understand something and trying to transform material into the real that is clearly fictional. How long does it take for you to transform some material or some character into something where it's purely organic and you can go ahead and let yourself off the hook and say, well, no, it is absolutely not my son. It's absolutely not, you know, this person who screwed me 10 years ago. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm wondering how this works for you. Well, I think in every time it's, it's different. I mean, I'm not as a rule an autobiographical writer at all. I don't, the idea doesn't interest me at all. You know, my life is my life and my yeah. writing is a kind of alternative to it. I'd find it quite dull, actually, to write about my own experience. You know, I write to sort of escape my own experience in a way. Um, but obviously, you know, inevitably, I think with every writer, there are certain elements or experiences or stories that you've heard that will filter into your fiction. I mean, it's, but often it comes out sideways. And so in the question of dyslexia... Um, as I was writing the book, my son was diagnosed with the condition. And, you know, and I think you know, dyslexia is one very short word for a very, very complex and varying condition. You know, there are no two dyslexics the same. It affects people in very, very different ways. It's different challenges. Um, you know, there are many, many different um, types of it. And actually, the type that Eva has is very different from my son's. Um, so it was mainly, it was mainly. I often think that fiction comes. You know, people say that fiction comes from what you know, but I find it almost the opposite. I think it comes from something that you don't understand. It's more for me about addressing unanswerable questions. You know, because when I, I I knew nothing about dyslexia, when my son started having issues with literacy, um, and so I did what I always do. I just got to a library and read as much as I could. You know, I read every book that you can get your hands on, and it was you know fantastic because in this day and age, there's a huge amount of help out there. There are, you know, support and there are books and there's a huge amount you can find out. And so while I was reading this, you know, um, I think my response as a mother was, how can I help? How can I try and sort this as much as you can? Because, you know, it's a lifelong condition. It's always going to be an issue and a challenge for anybody who has it. But I think your response of an, as a novelist is a bit more abstract. Your response is often, what if? And so while I was reading these books all about, you know, learning support and <laughs> different, <Yeah. laughs> different programs to help, I was at the same time I was thinking, you know, what would happen if this wasn't here? You know, what would happen in a time before diagnosis was invented or, you know, before anyone really recognised it? You know, the, you know, witnessing the struggle and the sort of heartbreakingness of dyslexia is awful because it's so hard. These kids, you know, these people, they don't know why they can't do it. And everybody else in the classroom seemingly around them can do it. They can yeah. decode this series of shapes into meaning. But dyslexics can't, and that's you know it's so isolating and difficult, and and it's a dyslexic a may th and dyslexic may think, oh well, I am not going to be able to have the imagination, the privilege yeah. of literature to really delve into these worlds that everybody else enjoys, and exactly. I can't. Yeah. And just the devastating effect it can have on your self-esteem, you yeah. know, um, unless you can catch it really early and and support the child. Um, so anyway, so I was interested in that idea, so that's why. Eva turned out to be dyslexic. So it's kind of, you know, it, she isn't in any way actually like my son's. So my son's dyslexia is very different um, to hers. 
But I gave her the most difficult, most devastating type because obviously that's what novelists do. They're yeah. evil in that way. <laughs> Torturing like Greek gods. Well, yeah. Well, this, this leads me to also ask you, I mean, it seems to me that you do do quite a bit of research, whether it be photographs <laughs> influencing uh, one of your other books or, in this case, uh, looking into dyslexia. I mean, do you require a lot of uh, stimuli, really, to get your imagination going i mean you just have to just constantly read and read and read and then all of a sudden your imagination wanders and you're into that what if state uh you know what how does this work i don't i think it's the thing that i think it's more it comes second actually i think i have a i think like a lot of people i have an innate curiosity i love to know about things (laughs) you know i was i loved being a student i loved studying that's the kind of person i was and so i think it's just a continuation of that you know, you'll invent something, you'll invent a scenario, you'll think, well, what, ha- what would it be like to have been a photographer's assistant in the 1970s in New York? And so I track down somebody who was a photographer in the 1970s yeah. and I say, what was it like? You know, and they could tell you all about it. And it's just, you know, it's just an excuse really to find out as much as you can about something you knew nothing. And it's it's great. On the other hand, like John Banville always goes on about how Yes, well, I read all about Galileo and Copernicus in my early books. And, you know, it's just a waste of time. Now I just invent everything. Everything is much easier. I mean, you know, why can't you, why do you need the research more than the imagination? I understand curiosity, but at the same time, you know, sometimes the subconscious can tell a more plausible lie than any amount of research you could possibly do. Well, you need both, inevitably, obviously. You know, yeah. you can't just, you know, I mean, if I was just researching, I'd, I'd, I'd written an academic book, I suppose. But um, I think the other thing, you have to be very careful and wary of research. I think I think the thing it does for me is provide a kind of safety net, a confidence, you know, because 99% of it you, you chuck out, you don't even use, yeah. you know, you store it away in your mind. You know, But nothing you learn is ever wasted, no matter what it is. You know, it's, it's never a waste of time learning things finding out about stuff um and so but I think you need it there to kind of to give you confidence you know one of my books I wrote was um set in the 1930s and I did a huge amount of research to that most of which you never even make it into the book but it's there because you need to know it you know you need to be sure and I wrote a scene where uh I don't know a girl puts on some lipstick in the 1930s and I said to my grandmother what color would she have worn and she said oh she would never have worn a lipstick, you know. A girl of that class, oh no, never, never. And I thought, well, actually, that's good that I know that. If I hadn't asked her, I would have done it. And somebody could have read that and thought, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Yeah. You know, and so you need, all that stuff is good. You need to know, it. even if it doesn't appear in the book, even if it means you cut something, it's very important. You have a responsibility to get it right. Does all that information create limitations that perhaps are a boon of for someone like you who is willfully going to go and write a novel set in multiple continents, set in multiple time periods, that, oh, well, if I go ahead and and set up a kind of uh, fencing with all the information I know, I'm not going to go ahead and spend endless years of my life writing (laughs) vast, sprawling kind of novels. Well, I think think we've all had that experience of reading a novel and there'll be something in it that doesn't read right. It's not right. It's, you know, and it's a terrible shock and it's a horrible shock and it pulls you right out of the book. And I think you always have to be wary about doing that. You never want to make you know, a faux pas, you never want to make a mistake. And I was anxious reading, writing about New York because I thought, well, you know, real New Yorkers are going to read this and they're going to think, you know, if I, have, if I let one detail slip, if I do one thing which doesn't ring true, that, you know, that scene falls apart. It, it will feel artificial, it will feel constructed, it won't feel like real life, it won't feel like the flow of fiction. So going back to this issue of research, 
you uh, you've relied on photos, as I had said, but not just that. But I know for uh, the hand that first held mine, you read memoirs of Lena Jagger, Mary Stott, Jill Tweedle. Uh, I'm wondering, you had mentioned that you had talked to people, but did you read any books circa 1976 for instructions for a heat wave out of curiosity? Did I read any books? Um, I think I did. I did read some social. I did read some history and social history about the time, um, and I read. I didn't actually. I didn't read. Yeah, I, so I suppose it would have been that. And I, but it was mainly it, a lot of it was talking to people actually. And a lot of it was talking to um, relatives and friends of um, Irish origin to find out what their experience of. It. I was quite interested in the idea of what it was like to be Irish in that time in London. You know, because there was, as I was saying, a lot of antagonism between um, Britain and Ireland at the time. And of course, you know, there'd been the terrible pub bombings um, in the mid seventies and. Bloody Sunday! You know, it was, a, it was a horrible, horrible chapter in um, Ireland and you know Ireland and British relationships. Um, and of course, this comes out a lot in Britain. I mean, I remember it from my own childhood. Um, lots of really horrible jokes, lots of accusations about <laughs> you know questions about whether we were involved in the IRA. You know, awful, awful stuff, really. That just at the time seemed normal. You know, um, so it's more that I didn't. It wasn't so much a kind of library-based um, research this time. Although some of the kind of dyslexia stuff filtered into it. Yeah. So I'm wondering, how do first-person accounts help you to get inside fictitious characters? Do you feel that perhaps that looking into how people describe a certain time or a certain kind of angle of a social milieu, is this a way for you to sort of see how people lived and maybe how to kind of describe it based off of that? I'm wondering what you take away from some of these first-person accounts. Um, I, think it's, I think it's details can be really useful. Um, I read a first, you know, someone mentioned, I can't remember who it was now, was it Catherine Whitehorn? Very, very, in passing, she just mentioned where... She kept all her cutlery and cooking things in a bedsit, you know, and I would have no idea. It didn't even occur to me, <laughs> you know, where one would keep their utensils in a bedsit, but apparently you kept them in a box under your bed. You know, and just knowing that when you're writing about 1950s London in life in a bedsit is useful because you can mention it, you can drop it into the middle of a sentence and it makes you sound as though you know what you're talking about. Or something else I picked up, you know, if you live in a bedsit, I mean, you know, these are big, tall London houses, four or five floors, you know, there could be 20 people living in it. How you know the doorbell's for you? Because there's a whole system of kind of coded, you know, you do yeah. the floor and then you do the room number. And, you know, if you didn't, if you hadn't read that, I mean, I don't, I'm not even sure that made it into the book, but if you didn't know it, you wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to you. It wouldn't, and you wouldn't get the kind of picture of what it would be like living in a massive house all split up into bedsits. Um, and, you know, and I think even that is a kind of, um, is a spark to the tinder of your imagination. You know, you can imagine suddenly you, if you hadn't read that detail, you couldn't picture lots of girls running up and down stairs making sure, you know, it was their boyfriend at the door and not, not someone else's or getting utensils out from your bed. It, it, it all kind of adds into the mix. It's sort of al- it's all part of the alchemy. But it's also a security against kitsch, against cliche, against a sort of false general sense of the world. I, yeah. I, is, is, does it operate like that for you to some degree? Like, oh, well, I have this very exclusive detail that very few people have actually written about who have written about. 1976, and I can possibly put that in for people who did live during the time, or people who want to actually investigate this further and find what I found. And then, voila! We have verisimilitude, we have plausibility, and we don't load the uh, novel with a bunch of nonsense. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, if there was ever a chance that somebody who had lived in a bed in the 50s was reading your book, they would think, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> That's right, she's got that right. Which is, you know, I suppose that's all you can ask for if you're writing period. Huh. Have you ever had that someone who absolutely lived exactly in the place you were writing about came up to you and said, "Hey, you got that wrong." 
Ah, got away with that. I want my money back, Maggie. <laughs> Not yet, but you never know. It could happen. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, Robert's disappearance, along with Monica's first husband leaving her. Well, this reminded me very much of Jimmy going out for the Lucky Strikes in Don DeLillo's Underworld. However, I did find a very perspicacious review by the Telegraph's Elena Sayamliski. I probably mangling her name. I apologize, Elena. But she pointed to a number of books that have dealt with this curious phenomenon of men who just disappear. You know, Rachel Joyce's The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, the Ollie Smith novel, things like that. A recent spate of books. Um, masculinity defined by disappearance. I was wondering if uh, if you could, if you had any thoughts on why there's so many novels that are suddenly having all these men just leave the house. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. It wasn't something, I wasn't aware of being part of a trend, but yeah. um, maybe Elena's right. Uh, I mean, the reason I... He, I had him doing that is because I actually met when I one of the conversations I had when I told someone I was writing about the seventy six heat wave was um, with it was at a party it was just a guy I met and he turned out he was a police detective a retired police detective and I it was very early stages of the book and I said I'm writing this novel he asked me what I did and I told him I was a writer and I told him I was writing about the seventy six heat wave and he said and then we st- we were talking about because I asked him what he did or he had done and he said that he'd been a detective and he looked into his specialism was missing people yeah. and I said oh I've always been fascinated by the people who go missing deliberately you know those people who walk out of their door one day who just take that decision what an extraordinary thing to do yeah. and also not only to do it but to pull it off you know an amazing thing to pull off just to disappear and no one knows where you are to you- make yourself vanish yeah. and he said to me it's interesting he said the number of people who do that rises sharply during a heat wave <laughs> I wonder if there are any statistics on this. You know? Well, I, and I wish I'd asked him because he probably could have accessed some. But um, and I thought that was a fascinating thing to say. You know, the idea that this heat wave can. And I've also heard other people say, you know, the number of divorces or you know separations or affairs and stuff <laughs> rises steeply during a heat wave. It's something about the sort of physical act of heat upon us that makes us behave in this very extreme way yeah but it is interesting because it's harder and harder now to disappear especially as we've learned that all of our activity is being spied on i mean aside from the fact that we have mics here i'm sure there's another mic somewhere (laughs) spying on this conversation for me camera watching us yeah Yeah, absolutely it's true actually i suppose in this day and age it's much much harder isn't it yeah well there was a couple there's a british couple who uh, who who'd staged their own disappearance and then they they were seen, weren't they, in South America or something? I think they staged their own death or something extraordinary, yeah. and they were, you know, they were put in prison. I think. I wonder if there's something romantic now, at least in, on a on a masculine level, or even on a you know non-gender level, about just disappearing and walking up, walking away. You know, that that actually uh, allows one to understand possibly the consequences of that particular behavior. Because clearly, there's a lot of consequences here, and a lot of revelations come out simply mm. because one man leaves. Yeah. Well, I think there's, you know, I think novels are always, in, always often start with a catalyst. You know, you need someone to do something. It's like the domino. You need someone to, to be the first domino in a long line of uh, consequences. Um, but it was certainly, I didn't mean it in any sense to be a commentary on gender, I think, and masculinity. Because actually Aoife, I mean, she disappears as well, pretty she much. She just exits and takes herself off to New York. I mean, they know where she is, but she does a pretty... Um, comprehensive vanishing act. She doesn't. She isn't really touched. They don't. They can't find her at the beginning of the novel. They don't know where she is. They don't know where she lives or where she works. They've lost track of her. So I didn't intend it to be a comment on masculinity, not at all. So you're averse to uh, dealing with overt social novels. This is part of that kind of over descriptive 
overly descriptive novel that you disdain? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I, I find I find generalizations about gender very depressing, um, and I try to avoid them in life as well as in fiction. Actually, I think we're all individuals, you know. And I find particularly, I know, I think that often the way kids are brought up these days are very, very, um, you know, they feel like the genders are on terrible tram lines. And I really, I try and fight against it very, very strong, strongly with my children. My daughter, age four, doesn't even know what a princess is, and I count that as one of my biggest achievements in life. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of genders on tram lines. <laughs> I'm going to have to close it at that. Uh, Maggie, thanks very much. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Well, thank you very much. It was great to be here. Great. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, 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 ooh.